Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner and Alexander Lashley. For as little as $3, you can gain access to patron-only episodes, as well as access to our Discord server, where we host weekly live discussions with host Ekoi Hero and myself. So if you like what you hear, come join us at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. We're on Reddit, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or the podcast in general, then email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. Like the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. We're really lucky to have Bill Bronston here today because of his amazing book about Willowbrook called Public Hostage public ransom. And it's about the huge 6,000, I'll call them inmate facility that was in Staten Island that housed disabled people, people who were in mental trouble. And it became a terrible prison of abuse and neglect. And Bill Bronston exposed that from his position as a doctor, he exposed that and saved a, a lot of Americans, at least briefly, from experiencing such a horror. And I think what he did, which is the most important, is he exposed this carceral system in which a diagnosis that's medical can allow people to be banished into subhuman conditions. And it's very important for us in this program, it's not just in your head, because the Diagnostic Statistical Manual with its medicalized labeling of people also can put them in hospitals where they never get the treatment they need. Luckily, mental hospitals are not covered by Medicaid Title 19, Article 19, excuse me, so that as soon as one's insurance runs out, people are usually found ready to leave. But um, this expose is crucial. It's crucial to all of us because those same conditions persist. And so I'd like to ask Bill Bronston, how do you feel about the conditions now of the same population whose terrible treatment you exposed in your book. You know, Harriet, we, we live in a, in a monetized society, which is really important for people to understand. The reason why people are institutionalized uh, is because the federal government provides states with a 50-50 match dollars for everybody in institutions. And, and I'm not just talking about institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but nursing homes, hospice care, supported living, uh, all of that, assisted living programs. We, we, have, we live now in an institutional culture that began in 1964 when Title 19 was essentially established in the country as a matter of public policy. And most people today don't even remember what it was like before we had this institutional solution. What that means is, is that an artificially created a domestic refugee population of all of us essentially is put into a hostage relationship in segregated 
congregate living arrangements that may or may not be terminal, but essentially uh, are governed by a medical model administered in large part intermediary wise by a physician uh, 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 administration and essentially operated by the lowest paid, least trained, most oppressed workforce uh, in, in human services, mostly women, mostly women of color, and certainly people that are poor, maybe making maybe making $15 an hour, I, I don't know, or less. Uh, and, and the result of that is premature death, uh, vulnerability at a very profound level, and and that's the status quo. That's that's where we are today. That that's the situation. And it's hard for people, ordinary people like us, to understand and feel the gravity and the sadness of this solution that has been imposed on us by policy law by mostly white guys starting in 1964, when instead of having a piece of policy legislation to directly fund families to care for their dependent members, they required the funding to go directly to facilities. Facilities become the beneficiary of the Medicare Medicaid system. Medicaid is absolutely evil and has created a status quo, a paradigm in American culture that's absolutely cruel and and violent in the extreme and people don't really feel or understand it and can't imagine the scope of the incarceration that it has imposed on, on the general society that we experience and and all of us all of us will wind up in a segregated congregate facility before we die because that's where the money is when you say medicaid are you talking only particularly about Article 19 of Medicaid yes. that allows yes. for these carceral services? Because yes. yes. some of Medicaid really does help dependent children and so on. Yeah. But um, third rate care, third rate care, third rate rates, you know, and and essentially is uh, a, a violation of poor people's life situation. Yes. Well, one of the things that strikes me about your book, and I'd like you to talk about, is the role of capitalism in healthcare. Because, of course, there are systems of healthcare, let's say in France or in Cuba, where there is no capitalist profit involved. But can you comment on how the economic system of capitalism fits into this tragedy? Well, you start off by seeing what drives policy and what drives politics. It's not the needs of people. It's the way in which money is handled. Because, for example, every single program that exists in a state, essentially that is funded, is funded with precise dollars that are defined by the state legislature, signed off by the governor in order to implement. So nothing happens because of thoughtfulness or rational rationality or whatever. Things happen as a result of law being passed that say you will do the following ABC and here's the money to accomplish ABC. And that's written precisely into law so that everything that goes on in our society is funded by law that either occurs at the state level or at the federal level. So what you have is a situation where 
people's needs essentially arise out of a reaction to an imposed delivery system that happens in our society. And if there's any change or modification in the way in which care is provided, it's a result of ordinary people organizing and essentially lobbying their legislatures in order to modify and 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 define and humanize whatever it is that's at issue, whether it's transportation or housing or or healthcare or or social services or whatever. And 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 people don't really quite understand that. I mean, we live in a society where we accept this brutality, this 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 alienation, without question. You know, it, it just it's the way things are. And they don't understand, we don't understand, people don't really understand how power is wielded and how power is imposed in order to draw money upwards into the economic system, into the hands of the wealthy. Whether we're talking about the pharmaceutical industry or the hospital industry or the insurance industry or Wall Street or whatever it is that is the the, the focus of the concentration of the billions of dollars. Medicaid has spent six trillion T trillion dollars since 1965 and it was passed in order to institutionalize our culture. What I mean by institutionalize is legitimize and construct and, and essentially disseminate segregated congregate terminal services for dependent people. And dependency is very subjective. When you talked about who's in our institutions, there are people in our institutions that are there because families can't cope. There are people in our institutions because of poverty. There are people in our institutions because of discrimination, racism, and disability, you know, handicapism, and so forth. So, so what happens is that the unwanted, the 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 the, the ugly, the 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 different are essentially disappeared into places that keep them until death or whatever out of social integration in society. So we lose the power of differentness in our culture because the differentness that's unwanted is essentially marginalized, is incarcerated. They become public hostages and Medicaid is the public ransom that comes to the uh, the the um, uh, institutional system that can then decide whether to keep that individual there to continue getting the money or to at some point or another turn them loose. And there's no incentive to turn, to turn people loose when you're getting yeah. paid to keep them there. Well, what you said, they're supposed they get the money because they're supposed to accomplish A, B, C. Yeah. Now. Are the, what kind of accomplishments are they supposed to accomplish? And also, where's the check and balance here to check if they are accomplishing said objectives? Well, that depends in some part on the structure of administration of the institution in question. So, for example, if you have a hospital system, uh, the, 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 the role of the hospital system is essentially is uh, administered by a board that ostensibly has some kind of policy role. There's a, a contingent of senior physicians and senior health professionals that sit underneath that board, and they have an obligation in order to promote uh, the absence of illness. 
not wellness, but the absence of illness. And so to the extent that that happens, and to the extent that the hospital needs to turn people over in order to bring in more money, they will turn loose before the absence of illness has been achieved. And certainly, healthcare is not for sale in America. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a medical wealth transfer system. And referring to our service delivery model as a healthcare system is a misnomer and, and essentially distracts and misinforms people about what in fact is really going on. And serving elders is a case in absolute point. So the question of what we're going to do with ourselves as we become more and more dependent in terms of mobility, in terms of speech, in, in terms of, 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 of cognition uh, and, 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 and medical needs, you know, pathological problems, disease issues that come up is really an enormous challenge. And you cannot solve that problem in a congregate way. It has to be addressed on an individualized way, and we have to have an entirely new workforce in our society, like the workforce, for example, in Cuba or in France or in Canada, where there's a whole different orientation and training of what people are supposed to do to help other people be better, get well, be well, live high lives, you know, as opposed to confined or, or essentially uh, uh, yeah, undermined is, by by various disability situations. Is there any check at all on whether these are humane organizations or are people just abandoned in there? My book essentially addresses a specific situation that occurred 50 years ago. However, at the time, that model of institutionalization for people that were very different was universal in the country. Every state had its set of, of institutions that were always administered by a medical model through a medical administration that essentially defined people in medical disability terms, medical disease terms. The psychiatric community was always the go-to because we use the term mental whatever, mental retardation, mental disability, whatever, psychiatric disabilities. And so it was always a psychiatrist with a psychiatrist perspective. That is, you know, if you're a carpenter, the problem is always a nail and you've got a hammer. Psychiatrist, the problem is always institutionalization or drugs in American psychiatry. And that's the way it was. Mental retardation was defined in DSM as a chronic, uh, progressive, incurable condition. And so it made sense under a medical model to put people away and to put them into a context that was not a hospital, was not a school system, was not a home, but was some kind of a warehouse. Willowbrook was an example of an, a true American concentration camp. And what had to happen from the beginning was that the entire mental retardation system in New York, which was exclusively focused in 60 major massive institutions in the state, had to be shifted from a medical model to an educational developmental model. It's ironic that the closure of Willowbrook 
resulted in the establishment of a city university of New York called uh, College of Staten Island, so that the entire property that used to be a concentration camp is now a college. Yeah, good use for that project. Critical use. And it should have been a college from the beginning. That is, we needed a college-level faculty to work with the, the challenge of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities because you don't just work alongside somebody that needs educational and developmental help. You have to be causal. You have to understand what you're doing. You have to, you have to really have the most profound uh, grasp of educational technology in order to move people that may not be able to talk, walk, think, whatever it is, into function. Because everybody, no matter how grave their condition, is in the process of evolving and changing. And to the extent that they're expected to change, they will change. To the extent that they're not expected to change, they won't change. And if you put people into the kind of barrenness, the kind of brutality, the kind of of, of emptiness, day in, day out, minute after minute, week after week, that existed in that institution from the time they walked into it till the time they were taken out feet first, you have a situation where you're suppressing life, which requires inordinate power to suppress living power. You have to drug, you have to physically violate, you have to, you have to enforce uh, uh, motionlessness in that situation because you're in, a, in, a, in an empty room with 50 human beings that essentially you know, have no culture, no education, no support support, no touch, no love, no, 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 no compassion in, in their lives ever, ever. You know, the magnitude of the crime is almost inconceivable. And the thing that I wanted to write the book about was that's not an issue for them. That's an issue for us. We are they. They are us. We will become them sooner or later in our lifetime. And we have to make sure that we live in a society that on an individualized basis, on a home basis, on a family basis, essentially is compassionate, imaginative, creative, patient, you know, and essentially able to have the resources necessary to support life, to support development, to support interaction, to support value. I mean, people need to be taken to the opera. They need to be taken to the symphony. They need to be taken to theater. They need to be taken to movies. People need to be taken out. They need to be in the middle of things. The society, like when when the change came as a result of ADA and before that, there were no people out on the street in wheelchairs because nothing was accessible. And the minute the the movement reached the the human rights power to alter public law, all of a sudden this gigantic population of people that have been how you know put away hostages whether it was in their own homes or in institutions, suddenly appeared on the streets. The streets became reconstructed with, with curb cuts and with places for blind people to know where the edge of the street was and before the street was there and ways in which people that were deaf you know, could, could essentially navigate society. The whole question of accessibility, accessibility became huge. The man I worked for here in California when I was the medical director of the State Department of Rehab had polio as a teenager 
and he could only move one finger and, and his head. The rest of his body was completely paralyzed from polio, and he slept in an iron lung every night and had a positive pressure breathing system in his gigantic wheelchair, which is now sitting in the Smithsonian Institution. His name was Ed Roberts. He was the Gandhi of the disability community. And he almost single-handedly established the radical change in social acceptability, social integration, and respect for differentness. We need to change our language. Disability is a very pejorative image in our culture. We're really talking about differentness and the respect, the, the honor of significant differentness in our society. Cultivate it, you know, embrace it, you know, disseminate it, talk about it, understand it, because that's where individualized life and personal fulfillment, I think, ultimately is going to come. Well, when, you know, in New York City, in some ways, we had the terrible opposite of that when they closed places like Willowbrook, which they certainly should have, and smaller abusive institutions. They wanted, they said that they would set up community health centers. Well, they just released people. No, not true. Onto the street. Not true. Not true at all. What happened with Willowbrook was that the entire class, all 6,000 people, were essentially put into federal oversight and were required to be put into small and individualized service delivery settings. Nobody, nobody from Willowbrook is on the street. Nobody is on the street. No, but there are many. I mean, I, I know, I know somebody who worked with people who were homeless and had mental health issues. And one of the problems was in order to provide community mental health, some very profit-driven organization, just swiped them into the subway system, which was a way of dealing with them, for which they were paid handsomely as if they were really rehabilitating people. How do you see managing a population that can't really stand up for itself within a predatory capitalist system? Well, you know, we share a common commitment to significant paradigm shift in our society and the transformation of that capitalist system to a socialized system that is based on replacing I and me with we and community. And to have a sense of caring for one another and respect for one another and toleration for one another, regardless of the extent of our differentness. So what has to happen is that we need to transform our medical delivery system to a single payer, universal, rightful, comprehensive healthcare system where 100% of the population is able to obtain at any point from any professional in the society direct services with no cost at the point of service. That is, you go and get taken care of from whatever professional you, you, you need for that, for that need, whatever you have, and you go home after that. The professional then builds a trust fund where 100% of all the medical money is all in one place. Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP money, uh, uh, child health uh, uh, money, uh, all of that is all in one place so that the professional gets paid within 30 days 
and can build directly to that to that source. The, the question of how that gets handled really requires two, three profound changes. Number one, you have to have meaningful public governance, democratic public governance. You have to have a broad enough board overseeing that kind of delivery system to really be honest and, and transparent. Secondly, you have to change the workforce. We have to change the way we're training people to care for other people, to care for other people in a different way, you know, you know, and, and, and thirdly, there has to be a fundamental transformation of the locus where you get care. You, you, you must not be forced out of your community to a hospital constant empire, whether it's Sinai or, or Columbia or whatever in New York or here in, in, in the United States, in California with our big empires, you have to have care in your home, on your block, in your community. And that care has to be communified, communalized, not institutionalized. Those three things, a different workforce, a different place where care is given, and a different administration to look at the transformation from what we have now, which is abysmal, to what we need to have, which over a period of maybe a decade will be transformed into an ideal system. The Cubans did it very rapidly, but you know they were forced to do it because all of the doctors in Cuba prior to the revolution were pulled out by the United States to, to do whatever they could to undermine that revolution. And Fidel had to fundamentally create a medical delivery system. It was like a barefoot doctor situation in China that Mao was faced with. And, and now in Cuba, for example, they have 22, med 22 medical schools, the 22nd medical school has 20,000 students. Not one of them is a Cuban. Not one of them in that 22nd medical school, ELAM, the, uh, the, the, the Latin American medical school system, is a Cuban. Those are all international poor kids that the Cuban people are funding to become doctors to send back to their countries to serve in the most underserved, you know, and stricken areas of their countries in, in the poor countries of the world. They export somewhere between five and 8,000 doctors a year, every year out of Cuba to the rest of the world. I mean, they don't have oil, they don't have diamonds, they don't have lithium, they don't have mineral wealth. All they have is people and they have put all their resources into transforming people into functional, thoughtful, creative, moral, you know, imaginative, expressive, competent human beings. And they, they put them out there in the world wherever they're allowed to be. Well, that's very interesting because I've also heard that medical schools in the United States limit the number of people they take in order to keep medicine's prices up. Exactly, exactly. There's fees so that you have this capitalist infected system. Yeah. And a, a very interesting experiment there was in New York City where they took one of the single occupancy hotels and redid it. And a woman took charge of making it a place for elderly people who didn't have family support. And each of them had a little apartment, but big communal space. And they worked on communal meals together. And what they found out is Medicare saved so much money because they didn't have as many ailments. Certainly. They went on trips, they saw movies, and people came alive. I mean, they didn't get over all their diseases, but they were much less stricken. from. So from a medical cost point of view, it was very effective and they didn't reproduce it. 
because this capitalist idea of dominating the legislators to get the legislatures lobbying to get money to institutionalize is a terrible problem for mental health and physical health. Of course, of course. I mean, what what you're describing, I'm sure everybody that listens to this show feels and understands we live here in our society. We live with constant fear. It may not be conscious, but it's there. There is no sense of security or assurance that we will be cared for when we become dependent in any way and not just cared for to kind of be invisible, but care for to be proactive in society, to be active citizens, to be democratic, you know, activists in our society. And we're not going to have a gun fighting revolution in America to move towards a socialist society. Right now, you know, we're in a terrible situation, you know, in terms of the Trump imposition and the fascism that's growing in our country and everywhere else in the world. But but that a solution must come. Otherwise, we'll be finished. The planet will be finished and we'll be finished. What, what I'd like to do, though, is to urge people to read my book. And the reason for that is that I try to tell a story at a very personal level that is a documentary narrative. It's a melange of different formats of memos between me and the administration, narrative in terms of telling the story, um, uh, um, uh, legal briefs from my lawyer and from the federal court that essentially move the story along to this. The book is called Public Hostage, which is the first part of the book, and Public Ransom, which is the second part of the book. And the second part of the book essentially talks about follow the money. And I try to write in a way that is as tangible and understandable and feeling filled as possible so that people get a model of a cancer, of, 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 of a concentration camp. They can then apply that in their own lives to where that fits. But what has to happen is that they have to understand, people have to understand that the only solution to this abysmal, dehumanized culture at one level is universal, rightful, single payer health care. And there's a gigantic movement in this country and in every state in order to drive that single payer campaign into the legislature. Now, the problem, as you point out, is that our legislature is corrupt. We will never be able to have a state legislature with the kind of money that will be put into it by the insurance industry, the hospital cartels, and the pharmaceutical uh, uh, cartels do the right thing. And so we're gonna have to move this campaign, I believe, after working on this now for 50, 60 years, through a direct vote, through a plebiscite, through, through propositions, wherever we can. California has a law that allows for propositions. But of course now, after all this time and all this, this struggle to get this to happen politely, we reached a point where the opposition is so ferociously evil, so organized, and so phenomenal, wealthy. It's all the people against all the money. Our job is to get all the people. Their job is to just spend all their money in order to misinform, disinform, and essentially terrify people about the virtue of what you're talking about. That model that you talked about that was so uh, cost-effective and so humanizing cannot 
cannot be allowed to be legitimized in our culture under the, the watchful eye of the oligarchy. Cuba, Cuba is hated, hated by the oligarchy in this country because, God forbid, the Western Hemisphere gets the picture that a socialist society can have the kind of vigor and, and the enormity of, of well-being, you know, and energization that the Cuban people have. And for 60 years, we've, we've now required that they be defined as a terrorist state, which essentially blocks any kind of, of, of uh, resources coming to them, food, medicine, whatever. And, and we've, we've had our foot on their neck for 60 years in Cuba in order to vilify the model, to vilify the model you're talking about happened in New York. It, it, the, the press doesn't, doesn't lionize, doesn't talk about that. My book essentially addresses how evil works and what is the antidote to that evil, the, the antidote to that evil. There is no other antidote that's possible in our society other than a single payer health system, which touches every single body in society, would transform our lives profoundly, but would require some very challenging personal transformation. The opposition, for example, comes from the third of the country that are the Trumpers that essentially are driven by white supremacist and white nationalism. The terror of somehow losing their caste dominance in society. You know, the Wilkerson woman that wrote this gorgeous book called Cast really is worth reading. It's beautiful. What's also very interesting to just add to the story about my book is that an enormously poignant uh, New York Times celebrity author by the name of Ellen Wiseman has just written a book based on reading my book. Her book is called The Lost Girls of Willowbrook, and it's terrifying. I got to fourth chapter, I had to put the book down. It made me too anxious. It's all fiction, but it talks about the tree. My book talks about the forest. And so people really need to read Public Hostage, Public Ransom, Ending Institutional America first, and then read her book in order to get the feeling of what it's like to be utterly powerless in, in the grip, in the clutch of an alienated, cruel, violent, arrogant, dominating uh, professional uh, workforce that essentially is um, corrupted by yeah. the role that they're asked to play in the institution in which they are deposited to deliver their work, which is not health work, it's not medical work, it's not prison work, it's it's extermination long-term work. The job yeah, have is to keep people alive as long as possible at the low, lowest keep cost. Getting the, money. Yeah. getting the money. That's right. It's critical to look at the money in this situation. But in your book, you also talk about individuals like Lillian and later others. And so that we do get a sense of the cost on a personal level. I try and to capture that in photographs. I have four photographic chapters in the book, and I introduce them with a very short intro, one or two pages long, in order to help people understand not grotesqueness and not spectacle, but the impact of violence that's essentially driven by the institution and the institutional system. And now, 
in you know in France, I know that 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 care is universal. They have universal quality health care. I don't know about their system for mental health or disability. Do you? Because they're more, they're a country that Americans can imagine themselves as where it's harder to imagine themselves as Cuba. I think that the French system is not what we say it is. It's better than we have in the United States, but there's still huge gaps. I was just in Paris uh, four weeks ago visiting my relatives who are aging now. They're, they're my peers all, you know, in their late 70s and early 80s and not doing well. And they don't get wellness care and they have to go to hospitals. They don't necessarily have doctors coming to them. And even though the system is tremendously more communal, tremendously more natural, tremendously more rational and, and, and logical, it still lacks a sense of rightfulness that only Cuba has. The Canadians, for example, have a system that's really struggling right now because our cartels can't allow the Canadian system to succeed. They continue to eat away to try and insert private insurance as a compensation for people who can afford private insurance in order to get faster services or personalized services or whatever. But what it really is doing is undermining a policy position that was established by the socialist uh, uh, prime minister of Saskatchewan back, back in the 70s that established the first beginning model of the Canadian national healthcare system, which no Canadian under any circumstances would give up their Canadian national health card, whether they're a fascist or a socialist or whatever. They like their healthcare system and it's their healthcare system that is, is the most important thing that determines their Canadian mess. So they're, again, they don't cover drugs. They don't cover a whole lot of stuff in there because the doctors in Saskatchewan struck to block the establishment of the universal healthcare system that was proposed in that province that preceded the nationalization of the Canadian system. And in that, in that regard, Despite the fact that, that the Canadians lived through that, what happened was that 300 physicians from England were imported to break the doctor strike in Canada in order to establish, to allow the single-payer system to go forward. But, but the result of that was that they left a lot of things out, and now the Canadians are really struggling. There's a group called the Canadians for Medicare for All, Canadian doctors, for Canadian physicians for Medicare. And uh, it's a group that I've been talking with and working with in order to explain to them a model that I've created. My book is a pathway to a ideal universal healthcare system, which people can go look at if they go on, on Google to ourhealth.pub, P-U-B, short for public, ourhealth.pub. And the, the system in there that I put together, I did with 40 of my confreres from around the country. Over a period of a year, we met every Saturday for two hours on a Zoom call, 40 of us. And we essentially put together this ideal imaginative policy model that can potentially be employed 
in terms of advocating for the solution that would really make the difference, not just around deinstitutionalizing society, but restoring democracy. Because to the extent that the cartels control medical care, they drive a totalitarian culture into everybody's lives. The people who control priorities for our medical wealth transfer system are interested in wealth transfer. They're not interested in life or death. They're only mm-hmm. interested in money. And yeah. are, are, I mean, and, and the homeless situation in our society is, is inconceivable, inconceivable. I was just in Turkey for the last three weeks and I didn't see any homeless people in Turkey. Turkey, you know. Very I mean, poor. You know, we, we, we have gigantic refugee encampments here in Sacramento, in New York City. I was just in New York City visiting there with Ella Wiseman when she was marketing her book that just came out, The Lost Girls of Willowbrook, which I really urge people to read after they read my book so that they understand what it is that she's writing about. She's an amazingly fine writer. And uh, her book is going to sell millions of copies and in 20 languages. I mean, it's just incredible. My book, on the other hand, is is uh, a hammer blow. And it's a system story. It's very personal. And it's very, very personal. personal. And it also has anecdotes that sear your heart as well as photos. I think you managed to bring home enormous empathy as well as talk about policy, which is a, a notable achievement in your book, that book, public hostage, public ransom. I also, I do, you know, there are two voices in healthcare. One, Joe Badgent, who is a wonderful working class writer about the South, feels that given a chance, the South would vote for Medicare for all. But then you have Sarah Palin saying that that means death panels and that being picked up by our for-profit press that depends on advertising. And so you have, you know, you have various voices. And I do think that the average person wants free quality health care. I think that's true across this nation. But it would have to be advocated in a way to get around the terrible things that are said about it by people on, on the extreme right who are governed by the profitable industry model which dehumanizes as your book so vividly shows you know it's a struggle i think that that right wing is really driven by the most extreme efforts to combat fear they are terrified they may not be cognizant of the terror that they experience but the way in which they essentially uh, neutralize that that fear is through aggression, through anger. Blame. Blame, right. And and they pick out differentness, you know, whether it's color or poverty or appearance or whatever, uh, language, uh, gender, uh, LGBTQ uh, plus uh, status, as a way of blaming and explaining the fear that they experience of losing their identity, their sense of well-being and their sense of superiority. And, and the Wilkerson book essentially 
talks about that in such a beautiful and powerful way. I don't know if you're familiar with, with her book. She's a New York Times writer. I won the Pulitzer Prize with her first book, uh, which was a story of the uh, of the, uh, the, 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 the racial slave uh, railroad situation. The Underground but, Railroad. I, th I think I think that, that we have to somehow address the psychology which you're really in a position to think through and talk about of what it is that confirms right rightness right wingness well and they belong i think one of the things that has happened is that they have real losses yeah they are no longer they can't afford a better living for their children than they had anymore the american dream has died they don't have hope for the next generation. They feel debased because they are, because the mass of American workers are working in dehumanizing conditions in Amazon call centers, Walmarts, and fast food, where they have um, clickers to remind them that they have to be on task in a certain amount of seconds or they're reported and they feel that they've lost their dignity but the difference and they have and they're look and we don't have a present left alternative in our culture so what they have is the fascistic explanation to blame someone else, just as Germany suffered a terrible inflation and the humiliations after World War I. And they, and they had a very powerful left, and it was a choice between the left or the fascists. And the big capitalists of Germany invested in Hitler because it, would, it kept their corporations intact. And the capitalists of America invested in Hitler. The capitalists of America invested in Hitler. Many of them did, like the Bush or family and Hearst. Yes. Know, they went when there was the money. Because when a capitalism falls apart, it's useful for me to see it as a wooden barrel. And when the barrel starts falling apart, the capitalists take the iron bands of fascism to hold it together. And that depends on scapegoating groups of people whose wealth you can take and who you can exterminate. And I think America's in a bad way now. The most hopeful thing here psychologically and in every other way is that we are joining unions as we haven't since the 30s. That people recognize that there's two classes of people, the employer class and the employed class. And they don't and they want justice for their labor and they want justice and fight together, whether they have handicapped people or fully able people, whether they're LGBTQIA plus, whatever color they are and so on. And so there is this recognition. But in other countries, there's much more of a dominant alternative to capitalist profiteering than we have in America, because we haven't come together the way the recent victories in France, where Mélenchon united everybody, climate, Arab rights, black rights, LGBTQIA rights, people who are worried about the climate 
everyone together in an umbrella organization, France Insoumise, France Unbowed. And so they got the majority of, of legislative seats and they've passed a 15% increase in the minimum wage and they've passed an extra 10% for civil workers who work for the government on all the lower levels, that there is this unity, which also happened in Chile, where they won for the first time since Pinochet, a socialist revolution, and in Colombia, the same thing. And in Argentina, around abortion rights in a terribly Catholic country, they had the indigenous people and the gay, lesbian, LGBTQIA plus people and the climate people, everyone uniting together. And so they won, even though the Catholic Church invested heavily in defeating them. And so I think, you know, I think this is really, really an important thing that we need this voice of all the groups together. And then we can do it. And I think we could change the hostage situation of people who are in need, which we have in the United States now. I think that a few leaders like William Barber, Reverend William Barber, yes, campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, to call for some kind of concentrated leadership. What, what I think is potentially helpful, although I, I worry about that, is really understanding the Hitler playbook and what happened in Germany, because we're going exactly down that path. The language is the same. The situation is the same. And, and yet, but, but we have a couple, three things that are really different from then that I think are, are tremendously challenging. One is the climate issue. I mean, the climate issue is almost incalculable in terms of the impact that it's having on world society. I mean, rising water, the floods, the fires. I mean, it's it's really terrible. And we've we've never had that experience before. And it's it's gonna have an impact on people, irrespective of politics. I mean, it's so grave that it transcends it transcends alignment with a political ideology. The second thing is that we have a tremendous uh, presence of invisible digital uh, community that essentially is tremendously uh, subscribed by people under 30 that understand it and that are that are you know in, enjoying it and are being dehumanized in some part by it, but nevertheless are connected, invisibly connected, which is an opportunity for people who understand the technology if we could put together a team at a national level to punch through that, that tool to reach people around something that calls them together and speaks to their hearts and to their fears in a meaningful kind of a way. Yeah, think- and all the, all the fears, because I really do think that um, Reverend Barber is doing a good thing, but most poor people don't even want to identify as poor. And a lot of other people don't. I think it would be better to have an all people's campaign because I I think that, you know, people who identify as poor are very few, even among poor people. However, we do need that unity. We need a unifying force for all the people who see that this is a disaster, what's going on. And that, and I think that's the majority of Americans. And you're right. The digital connection is huge. And also Generation Z is much more left 
than has happened before. They don't have the American dream available and they feel they're going to be shafted and they're much more open to look for something else. Yeah, William, did you have a third uh, observation? There was, you mentioned um, the sort of invisible digital uh, population you mentioned prior to that, uh, something that's now slipped my mind, but it sounded like you were going to go on to a third uh, observation. Well, well, the climate is one, the digital situation is another, and, and the third is this really extraordinary mobilization of, of, of silo organizations like the Black Lives Matter, like uh, uh, LGBTQ community, like uh, 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 the women's movement, like the, the anti-gun movement that's being driven by the youth, many of whom have been shot at in schools. There, there is a framework in the society that really is unique, that needs to be pulled together. Somebody, somebody's have to call a war council in order to try and bring these groups together to share some of the issues to show that there needs to be some kind of a political movement. Now, whether that's going to be an electoral movement, I don't know. I, I'm, you know I'm 83. And I, you know, I, you know, I, I don't understand anymore what the structure of the solution is going to be. I, I, I am really concerned. I, what I want to make sure is that we don't leave our viewers today with a sense of, of pessimism or paralysis or depression. You know, it's so easy to be paralyzed and to throw your hands up and say, I don't know what to do. You know, and I anything, nothing that I do is going to matter because I'm just an individual. People have to belong to larger groups and they have to press those larger groups to become larger groups. And they have to have some kind of campaign that essentially addresses things that deal with everybody. Climate is one of those things. We have to figure out how to make the climate transformation more visible. Healthcare is central to that because we don't need another dollar in America to transform our medical delivery system into something really ideal. We have all the money in the world, twice as much as any other country in the world, and we still don't serve 30 million people in our country you know, with our medical delivery system, despite the fact that it's costing, we now have over $4 trillion, which pencils out to over twelve to $13,000 per man, woman, and child in America, essentially committed, being spent, essentially, that is all going into the oligarchies, all going into the cartels, not going into people's healthcare. And we're having this decline in all the top medical indices, like lifespan, like maternal and 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 and, and child mortality. Health. Yeah, I mean, right. So something's going on that's profound. We've got to do something about it. One of the things I did was write a book and put together this model for universal healthcare, which is ourhealth.pub on Google, and people need to look at that and they need to take that stuff and talk to their friends, have book club meetings about it, have church meetings about it, have synagogue meetings about it, talk about the, the possibility of transformation, because I think people are not uh, being challenged to use their imagination, their vision and their love, I mean, the power of their inspiration and energy in which to connect to other people. Well, I think that in addition to each organization, people have to see that those are issues are all interconnected so that we have an umbrella organization so that 
there's a central umbrella, which I think should be class, because class division is feeding all of these injustices, and then have as the panels in the umbrella, every organ, you know, every silo we have, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's um, Time's Up or which is um, the equivalent of the feminine, what is the feminist alternative? Me too. The mass, oh, me too. That, whether it's Time's Up and Me Too, whether it's climate justice. Never again. Never again. Whether it's a a union movement. Right. That is a burgeoning union movement because that's what's won, where they've won progressively. They've won because they see that they are the majority because they're united. And that's what I think we need. I believe no matter how bad things are today, and they are bad today, that we're on the precipice of seeing a growth of political activism from a progressive socialist standpoint that is just beginning to to get some speed and to, and to get some feet under it that will emerge over the next four or five or six years, provided we can keep the Trumpers out of office because they can so uh, dismantle the, the electoral democratic system as to make that impossible. And of course, to figure out how to handle this capitalist court and the capitalist department of justice, you know, in, in terms of, of neutralizing their fascist orientation, their support for extreme right, white nationalist, you know, oligarchy, you know, kind of dominant things. We are in a position to bring about change in our lifetimes, in the next decade, we'll know, we'll know in the next decade. And people just can't feel despondent, depressed, or paralyzed because the problem's too big. The problem's big. And also because we don't have to be, we are the majority. If you That's include right. in the we, all the different groups that are alienated and upset, we are the majority. And that we has to be out there. And people are hurting internationally. I mean, as, as much as there is this growth of fascist and right-wing you know, development in the international movement, there's an equal and larger community like in ours that are progressive and that understand much more clearly because there have been war on their land. We've never had war on our land except the Civil War. The First World War and the Second World War transformed the society in Europe and in the countries adjacent to Europe to, I mean, look at Germany. Germany went from a hardcore fascist country to one of the most progressive and remarkable uh, uh, progressive societies in the world, you know? And, and yeah, I, think, I think that change not is coming by itself, but will come because of our speech because of our work that we're doing, because Activities. of that, exactly. Because and of podcasts, even, which are everywhere. That's right. That's right. You, we, we must speak to depression and, and deal with that depression. We need to speak to the paralysis and speak to it. We need to speak to the fearfulness that exists there, because those are the elements that essentially are blocking the transformation to an ideal world. And we have to speak with compassion. You know, there's an interview that I saw where someone who's a Trump supporter was being asked, you know, why do you support Trump? Do you think he'll really bring back your job in, in as a, you know, a mechanic in industry? And he said, no, 
I don't think I don't think he'll ever bring it back. But he's talking to us. He's talking to our anger. And I think Bernie was doing that, too. He was reaching ordinary people and have if he had the Democratic Party behind him, I think he could have won. He was on Fox News and he was so successful. They never invited him back because, you know, you also need to have compassion for why people hold the views they do and speak to the reasons of the, of loss. Not that just often, compassion, but passion, energy. Yes. You know, yes. this is not an intellectual exercise. You know, this has to do with our livelihood. This has to do with, with, our, with our sense of well-being in society. You know, that's what's so beautiful about the healthcare agenda is that it speaks to the possibility of a wellness which is really imaginative, which is really ideal you know, to strengthen and encourage people. And your book, which basically says, get busy, because this is, you will be incarcerated in these terrible institutions also as you age. So do something about it now is a warning, but it's also an impetus for change. Exactly. I want people to understand what we're living in so that they can, you know, break the, 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 the confinement and understand with the right language that is we live in a society that's dominated by a huge domestic refugee population. We live in a society where there's uh, 41 million people out of the workforce that are taking care of some dependent members. 41 million people in America are taking care of somebody rather than contributing to the economy in, in the broadest sense. You know, I'm not saying that taking care isn't a major job and a major contribution, but it essentially pulls them out of producing some kind of transformation in the society while they're essentially holding on to make sure that their dependent family member is humanely, lovingly, intimately, tenderly managed, held, Encourage, you know, I mean, I mean, enlivened, you know, while yeah. that dependency is so dominant. But we we are also an enormous population of people who who want to change. That's what we we need is for psychological reasons, so we're not depressed, as well as for every other material reason, to unite together as a force. You know, I think your husband, for example, plays a, a tremendously powerful you know, a compelling role in the work that he's My doing. My husband is Richard Wolff, in case people didn't know. You know, who's this remarkable economist, remarkable intellectual, you know, who's been for his whole life committed to social and health justice, you know, and, and has his own programs and so forth. But, you know, he, I mean, talk about a, a, an extraordinary couple. You and he are, are amazing. And the constant, you know, the hammer beat of justice that you produce between the two of you is extraordinary. Well, it's because we actually are very, we are believers. We really do see the kindness in the world and the possibility. Yeah. And we see that what we, that it's not happening here and it needs to. We need to sow that, hon. We need to sow that. That that becomes really crucial. That story that you told about the elder community, that can be multiplied times a hundred in stories like that. And and I think almost in every one of your programs, if you would provide a a component of your program that gave a vignette of one of those successes. For example, there's a wonderful magazine called Yes Magazine that comes out of, that's just 
uh, incredible. And everything they put in that magazine is positive. Everything has to do with the wonderful things that are going on from soil, you know, uh, development to community development, to healthcare, to women. I mean, it's just a gorgeous magazine. Yes, it's called. And, and there are stories in there that are shocking because they're so positive. We live mm -hmm. in a, a society where we talk about what's wrong all the time. It's it sells, though, to have stories about disaster seem to be what sells newspapers. That sells, right. But it doesn't change society. It paralyzes no. But it depresses people. I think that since Trump was elected, that the society has really suffered from an enormous depression, enormous depression, clinical depression, you know, that 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 affects so many people, both Trumpers as well as anti-Trumpers. I mean, we, 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 we need to pull the plug on depression and we need to expose it. We need to talk about it. We need to, you know, detoxify our society with everything we do and say. And yeah, that I think, way will activate people to change it. I'm sorry, Liam. Yeah, no, it's just, just to say that I think your experiences and your story show that, you know, you, you went to this institution and people were demoralized and um, complacent, right? And you, along with the whole, whole movement, I guess, changed that place, you know, through because you ultimately believed in <laughs> humans being treated role correctly. Role modeling. I just took care of everybody around me. I took care of the workers. I took care of the, of the folks that were the hostages in the institution, you know, because I knew, I knew that the evil was so suffocating that it could not prevail. No matter how big the institution was, what I wanted to try and do was to do a, a model of a big Bill Haywood autobiography you know, Big Bohemian was a major uh, Rocky Mountain miner socialist organizer back at the beginning of the 19th century. I wanted to show how that would happen in a human service environment rather than an industrial environment. That one person alone with the right ideology and the right experience and, and the moral foundation could not commit suicide, but could bring down a major state bureaucracy and expose it for its role in crimes against humanity. Now, you know, it, it took, you know, hundreds of people and year, two or three years of organizing. But the, the problem was so the knife was so deep in the hearts of so many families that all I had to do was was show them why their kid was being brutalized and to encourage them to tell their stories of tragedy. And we sat and cried together. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of families I sat with. I was just moved to, to the to the core to listen to their stories, the suffering that they experienced from this model of dehumanization and violation, all in order to support this this Rockefeller governor and his and his oligarchy. I mean, and and the people that were making money through through all the tax and Wall Street relationship they had with the billions of dollars that they were spending in constructing these monstrosities without staffing them, putting them in, in remote places in order to get votes from those remote counties, you know, for, for the Republican Party at that time. Like prisons, you know, it's the same idea. Exactly, exactly. It's just another institution. It's another institution. Yeah, and they can be changed, uh, you know, like you said. There's uh, the kindling of the fire is there. <laughs> you just have to 
be part of the thing yes. that ignites it. That's really a good image. Ikoi, the same thing happens with addiction now that under Obamacare, they will pay for um, addict rehabilitation. There's all this flim flam going on. Can Do you see that, how, how that relates if you're there, Ikoi? And one of the major things is that, you know, the rehab industry, much like a lot of the care industry, I mean, you know, child protective services, elder protective services also kind of fall into this category to a certain degree. But, you know, they do um, rely on some of the more punitive aspects that are reflected in, you know, the institutional uh, mental health systems, as well as the carceral systems. Uh, one aspect of, you know, rehab is that because they are a huge satellite of very, usually very, very small organizations with relative captive workforce in a certain way that, um, that poses certain organizational challenges. Um, because substance use counseling is one area where, you know, potentially like, you know, prior prison, um, experience and, you know, obviously prior drug use history doesn't necessarily count against you in employment. Well, that's um, a, so a benefit. That or is a benefit. Potentially. Um, potentially a benefit. I think it's also one where, you know, it can help to drive wages lower hmm. because that's what I mean by like a captive, right? Like, they, yes. you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, like you do this, this is, you know, one area of, I guess, you know, professional, respectable work that's available, you know, and they, a lot of people feel like they don't have options elsewhere. Right. Right. Um, it's also one where, you know, facilities are known to employ former residents, rehab residents. Um, and to a certain degree, that does tend to result in people being loyal to the institutions rather than necessarily to the population served in some major ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and again, like there are there are benefits to these things as well, right? That you know people are familiar with, you know, the the workings of whatever said um, institutions. Um, so, and halfway houses, you know, sober living is a huge cash drive um, in our society, which is often like you know required by rehabs um, right. or part of rehabs. You know, so again, you know, we have a system where, you know, we have very, I mean, you know, drug use is one area that attracts, you know, every sector of society that no demographic is spared. Um, All funded by Title 19. You have to look at where the money is coming from. Yes. There. Yeah. And, and I think you have to understand that both the victims and the victimizers are suffering from maximum loss of identity. Mm -hmm. And they, they opt for different solutions or different lifestyles as a result of the lack of a social valued identity that's reinforced in the community in which they live and function. You know, the people- And by oversight, keeping them honest. You know, I think about how one of the things that keeps up the quality of medical schools is peer review that your peers are elected to go around and look at what you're 
you're doing. And the total unaccountability of these organizations is part of the problem, that they're not accountable. You know, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote this spectacular book uh, called Natural Causes. Mm-hmm. I, I love that people need to read. It's written. It's very, it's so She pressing. writes well. Oh, this book, Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich, talks just exactly about the stuff that uh, Ikeo is talking about and that you're talking about. It's really profound <coughs> and obvious. You know, I mean, we, we, we're, we're in the drink and we have work. To do. We have real work to do. We have to deal again with depression, paralysis, you know, and a sense of isolation and alienation and not accept the status quo. What, what currently exists is a manifestation of the financing system, the capitalist system, that is a cultural phenomenon. And that has to be somehow translated into a humanizing, socializing, uh, inspiring, energizing, loving society. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Alex Placito, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Jennifer Cox, Justin Harper, Rebecca Johns, Seamus O'Connell, and Sheena Belmas. If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just In Your Head. And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.